Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to an all-new Third Nerd podcast. Uh, a little business before we get started. I'm normally jo- joined by my co-host, Adam Howes, uh, but circumstances prevented uh, his being on this podcast. Um, as you guys can imagine, it, it can be difficult at times to have a podcast mate that lives literally across the world. Um, so uh, there will be times when stuff like this happens, and I uh, appreciate you guys hanging out with us. But uh, never fear, because I reached into my crystal ball and I produced a fantastic guest for the evening who I am sure can carry this podcast much like Adam carries me every single time that we do this. Um, I'm just going to simply call him a writer, actor, producer, director. If, if, if you have uh, uh, something that involves the arts, my man here, short of drawing that I don't know about, see, I'm going to put that caveat there. Uh, my man, Brian Edward Hill, is with us. And hey. we're going to talk a bit about your accomplishments, Brian. Uh, but, but go ahead for the people uh, and let them know sort of what you've written recently. Well, hey, I'm Brian Hill, and let's see. So recently I finished up a five-issue arc of Detective Comics. I believe that trade paperback is out now. Uh, Killmonger number one came out, I think, last week. American Carnage came out last month, number one. Number two uh, will be out this month. Uh, you know, I'm still working on Top Cow stuff. Uh, some Cyber Force is still happening. I got a new uh, season of Postal that we're doing. You know, we call it Seasons because it's, you know, kind of a TV-like book. So season two of Postal is on the way. Uh, and I am working on Batman and the Outsiders, which will be released at some point next year. I know there's been some some drama on the on the internets about it, but we just pulled back the release date so I could make some adjustments to make it fit uh, a little better into the larger DCU, and that book will be on the way next year. I am also a writer uh, on the DC Universe series Titans. I've been there since the beginning, since season one. And we are now into season two. Um, and I don't know, besides that, I make a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, plate of chicken fried rice. And I have a lovely baritone. I'm going to have to take you up on that. And, yeah, um, your voice is a hell of a lot deeper than I, than I anticipated. Oh, I don't... it's deep. It's deep, it's with, it's deep with, the, with the power. But see, pe- people are always like, wow, you're a lot taller than I imagined you would be. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm a damn giant. Um, but, uh, well, but, I snap my fingers. I can save half the universe. Not with me, buddy. Not with me. <laughs> I want to actually start with something that blew my mind that nobody had thought of it. And it, it's something you have written in, in, I wouldn't say recently, but recent-ish. Mm. thereabouts 
And that is, uh, thank God Marvel brought it back, but the What If series and the X-Gene that you wrote about. Now, for those of you who have a little bit of nerd in you, Brian went ahead and made it the X-Gene spelled dot E-X-E. Um, and uh, if you have been around a computer at all, um, you ought to know what that is. <clears throat> but he took the entire concept of mutation in the X-Gene and, and placed it within the framework, uh, obviously, of, of, of almost Tron-like computer setting, um, albeit probably a little bit deeper than Tron was in, in, in some ways. Uh, but uh, not to knock Tron, that is absolutely one of my favorite films, um, uh, as with Legacy. But uh, I, I want to – there is a creative team with this, but I want to know, who was the first person to say, you know, I've got this idea for an X-Gene, but dot exe? Well, that was, that was born out of uh, a conversation with my editor on that book, Chris Robinson. And uh, he reached out and said, hey, you know, we've got a slot open for a what-if X-Men. You know, what do you think? And I was like, well, you know, well, let's talk some ideas. And I'm a huge cyberpunk fan. Uh, Ghost in the Shell is probably one of my favorite films of all time, you know, animated or otherwise. So I, I wanted to dabble a little bit in that space. And then we just started talking about, you know, the, the X-Gene and what that would mean in a cyberpunk-like environment, human evolution and virtual reality. And I think the EXE bit of it, uh, I think that came from Chris, actually, to call it that. I think he kind of dialed that into me uh, via email. And I wove that into the story uh, and uh, put, the, uh, put the whole thing together. There are a lot of ideas in that book. You know, and it's funny, like, uh, I, I appreciate people who really enjoyed it, but if I could go back to that thing, I would probably lean it out a little bit. You know, I got so excited to do something cyberpunky that I put a lot of ideas in a single issue. And single issues are really difficult because um, you have to get a whole story in and not a lot of pages. Uh, and I'm used to screenwriting and screenwriting since, gosh, man, I don't even know, probably 15 years or something, you know, I sold my first screenplay, come to think of it. So I'm used to, you know, kind of having 110, 120 pages to flesh everything out. Uh, uh, but yeah, that 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 book came kind of out of that. You know, it's hard to remember who did what because I talk a lot to my editors when I work with them. You know, whether you know it's Will Moss and uh, Sarah Bernstein on um, uh, Killmonger. You know, we do a lot of back and forth. Uh, Andy Corey over on American Carnage, same thing. You know, so I uh, Chris Conroy on Detective and and Outsiders work. I, I like a lot of back and forth. So I talk to my editors a lot. We we share ideas. And everything is, you know, it's kind of like a little bit of everybody, right? I mean, ultimately, i got to throw the ball. You know, As take most good ideas are, you know. But. Yeah, like, you know, it's, it's, it's organic, right? Like, you know, you know the, the hut gets called, i got to snap, i got to throw the ball. Um, but the, the play really comes from uh, kind of everyone on the team, kind of down to, to you know, everyone, colorist, letterer. Like, I, I, I like to check in with everyone and get thought um, because you got great minds on these things. Uh, and I trust everyone else's talent to make up for my incompetence. So I like to hide behind the brilliance of the people I'm working with. It, I imagine it was because the first time I saw it, I was like, how did nobody use this before? But, like, whoever said it, whoever saw it, when you first saw it for the first time, did the light go off and you're like, yeah, we're using that. I, that, yeah, 
That's yes. I mean, sort of, you know, it always amazes me that there's not some top ten, top five selling cyberpunk book on the shelves, right? Like, it's such a huge and beloved genre that occasionally comics dip into. I think um, Alex DeCampi is doing a little Ghost in the Shell. I think there was a Ghost in the Shell book that came out a little bit ago. But, there, you know, there hasn't really been, like, a long-running, you know, sort of like a Wicked and Divine-style sort of cyberpunk thing. Uh, so when, I, when we started dancing around the idea of including the X-Men in the genre, that's when all that stuff started to bubble up. And that's why that book is packed to the brim with thoughts because we just had so much. You know, I would love to go back to that world, uh, that what-if world, I guess, and really take my time with it maybe in a 12-issue run, you know, and really explore what that world is like, what those characters are like within it, what virtual reality means for human consciousness, what mutation really will become. Because, you know, when we think about mutation, we tend to think about things in terms of the physical, uh, your physical abilities, because that, that, that was the, the realm, right? the, the, you know, when, when the X-Men were created. I think it was back in the 50s or something. So we're thinking a lot about radiation and radiation and its uh, ability to mutate, you know, kind of human physiognomy. But I think more about how consciousness is being changed um, by technology, you know, how the way we process information, our synaptic pathways, uh, all of that. I was having a conversation with my Uber driver because I, I take an Uber most places because I just don't like to particularly drive if I don't have to. Uh, and uh, the driver and I were talking about social media and the growing adolescent mind and how, you know, as, as young people are still, you know, aging and their brains are still forming, they're building entirely new synaptic pathways around the endorphin release you know, serotonin that comes with social media, and that's going to have real-world impact. That will evolve the species. And we don't really think about how things like Facebook, Instagram, you know, Vine, TikTok, Twitter, these things, they do more than just harness communication and get us kind of, you know, re relating to each other with images and sound bites. They also change a bit of the way we think. Right. And and there is a bit of an evolutionary aspect to that, that sort of thing. So, you know, I'd love to go back in that work and really discuss how things uh, like technology and our view of reality could uh, change human consciousness and what would be the result of that. And maybe there's something atavistic inside of people, something that's innate that gets touched by the influence of technology. And that can kind of create some kind of change inside an individual. So there's a lot of there, there's a lot there that I'd like to go back to if I had the time and, you know, if Marvel had the inclination and readers wanted to check it out. Yeah. You know, I, I, one of my favorite classes in college, I was a sociology major um, mm. for my undergraduate. And then I did, uh, excuse me, public policy, but a lot of, a lot of social thought mm -hmm. in public policy and technology and society was one of my favorite classes. And, and it was fascinating to me that, that you go back and you look at these major predictions made by scientists, you know, from, from early on to the 60s to even the, the, the 90s. Um, and, and you look and you see what people are imagining and how much of it has come real. And, and, you know, usually the people get a couple things, as you would expect. You, you, you logically follow what the, the, the emerging fields 
of the day are down a certain path and you can predict some things, but, but for the most part, what we found is the guesses were miserably wrong. Like they were just miserably wrong. Like people were expecting flying cars by 2000 and, and, and it was like, no, 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 we're not there yet. And thank God, because people, a little bit of rain in, in Southern California just turns into an undrivable mess. Right. <laughs> um, but, but I always loved the thought that went along with the technology, sort of the manifest and the latent functions that, that come out of these. Um, did, did the background I, – I, I assume Cable was sort of a no-brainer for, for this series. Hmm. But, but Domino, maybe, maybe somewhat so, but perhaps, you know, something that you could have written another way with another – what was the thought process behind Domino and, and bringing her in? Well, you know, we talked about who we'd use. And, uh, you know, Chris mentioned Domino to me. Uh, and then I brought up Cable because there's an obvious aesthetic uh, allegory to Matoko Kusanagi and Bato from Ghost in the Shell, right? Um, so I like the way that would look, you know, kind of on, on the cover and uh, uh, what it could echo in, in the minds of people who are familiar with, you know, Mumuro Oshii and Masamune Shiro. So, you know, it, it sort of came kind of out of that stuff. I mean, to be honest, Domino was not one of the, one of the mutants that I followed uh, a lot growing up. You know, I was more of a Charles Xavier, Magneto, kind of classic Jim Lee 90s type guy. Uh, um, but, you know, it made sense to try to explore it. And her, her powers are tricky. I mean, luck is, is tricky to quantify and difficult to kind of manifest on the page. But when you think about mathematics, probability, the ones and zeros quality of virtual reality, you can you can see kind of how that ability would manifest inside of VR. Um, you know, writing is is something I, I, I enjoy doing. I, I've always enjoyed writing uh, since I was a kid. But my my true passion is exploring human consciousness and the uh, the possibilities of it. You know, and how uh, esoteric thought can influence our ability to use consciousness uh, to manifest things in the world. So that's, that's something that I, I like to you know, wrestle with in my work, and the virtual re- space seemed like a good place to do so. You know, I mean, you'll, you'll, in that book you'll see ideas about, uh, you know, like Eric Lyncher and his, his childlike form that he takes inside of virtual reality because he can use that space, which I consider like expanded consciousness, basically. I mean, VR... Uh, essentially works as a shared consciousness. Um, like I can create, you know, we kind of have this imaginative landscape, this almost dimension that we can into and other people can enter into it and we can interact with them there, right? So, you know, who, what form would you take in that dimension? Or look at Charles Xavier, who can walk in virtual reality, you know, and how, how your identity can change uh, according to your vision of who you are rather than the material details of who you are. And and that was interesting to me. And and one of the interesting, you know, potential benefits I see of virtual reality and its evolution is our ability to manifest ourselves uh, according to how we wish to be. And then maybe, you know, if we uh, can be thoughtful about it, we could experience that inside of VR and then take that experience into the real world and hopefully bring our material world closer to our imagined one. 
You know, I'm always weary of that sort of hyper reality. Um, I'm sure you're you're familiar with with with, with the the whole concept of hyper reality, reality, mm-hmm. and and so on and so forth. I'm always weary of 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 people being thoughtful of hyper reality because that's I often find that what we you you mentioned social media, mm. and I think in in a in quite a few instances we now maybe have a larger following online even people with just a couple hundred followers like right right how many you do you normally hang out with 248 friends or something you know like right no of course it's it's a strange thing right because we are you know when i was a teenager um maybe i interacted in a significant way with 45, 50 different individuals in a given week. And that's a very liberal estimate, right? Um, and then anyone that I had an issue with, any bit of drama, they were all people I knew in the real world, right? So their humanity was always part of the equation. I always knew I was dealing with a person. I could, I could see them. I could look them in the eye. I could have conversations with them in person. Um, uh, and it, it was very difficult to dehumanize somebody when they're standing right in front of you. It's easy to dehumanize people on social media. And, and we're also, we're, we're getting a lot of feedback from a lot of different people. A lot of different minds come at us there. And I'm not sure the human organism, uh, is built to handle that properly, to be honest. You know, I think about the, the pressure that young people have now. I'm not I'm talking about young people like I'm Obi-Wan and Kenobi, I'm only 41. But I think about the, the pressure that teenagers have now to advertise and market themselves, you know, to uh, gain. Do people talk about their brand way too often? Way too early. Like that kind of self-awareness, I'm not sure that's healthy. And, and then when you have a, a, a metric, an actual metric for your influence, and it's, it's not objective, it's pseudo-objective, right, because – in, in reality, you have to think about the number of people that you can speak to and how deeply you can affect those people. And sometimes it's better to have five people that uh, you're deeply affected by and you can deeply affect than to have 11,000 people that you can affect in a shallow way. So the metric, like any number, like any statistic, doesn't tell the whole story. But nonetheless, there is a number. And when you're young and you're trying to figure out your self-esteem, and you're looking for some rubric, some kind of measure to judge your success, and you've got these numbers, you have an additional pressure that I never had. I had no hope of being famous when I was 16. I never even considered being famous when I was 16. Hell, I don't consider being famous now. But, you know, when you're now, I mean, you can. You can get YouTube, you can get Twitter, you can, you know, you can be on, like, one of those, like, Instagram or, or any of those things. And, uh, there are people who break out that way. And I, I don't know how healthy it is to, to have to live a life that's so self-aware. And in addition to that, we have a, a very strange relationship to the past. The past is always the present now. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful that the dumb things I did and said in high school aren't on Facebook. And I never did anything that awful. Uh, but, you know, like every teenager, sometimes emotion gets the better of you and you say something rude. Or you go through phases, you know, and, and there might be some, 
like Polaroid out there of me with bad haircuts, wearing like bib overalls, dressing like a character from a different world, or my my 35-day militancy phase when I had a public enemy necklace, although I still love public enemy, but I had like, you know, a beret and I was wearing like dark, dark sunglasses. And, you know, like you go through phases, right? And uh, it's good to let phases... We, we white people call that the goth phase on our side. Yeah, oh, I have one of those too. You know, I was, I, you know, I, I, I am, you know, I'm a, an equal opportunity uh, phase participant. But we're so, by no means the dominant ones. I just, I, every white person I run into, and I feel okay saying this because I'm white, but every white person I run into almost always had a goth phase. Well, you know, there's a lot of pull there. Like, look, if you get your heart broken by the right person and then you listen to The Cure within 24 hours of that, you're going to goth up a little bit. Uh, or yeah. if you're angry about something and you catch the crow, you know, in a movie theater or VHS tape, that's all it was when I was a kid, Good, goth up a little bit. And experimentation, I think, is a good thing. I think people should experiment with all types of kind of methods of being, points of view, methods of seeing. I, I, I support all of that because through the exploration, we come to under, understand ourselves in, in a better way. The problem is when you have a social media feed that keeps your, your thoughts of that moment, uh, and many of them aren't evolved, right? You're just expressing. You're not really sort of thinking through it, but your thoughts are there. You can't escape them and they get thrown back in your face. You know, you, you feel like there's this gravitational pull uh, towards the past and that prevents you from evolving and moving into the future. And I'm not sure that's healthy. In fact, I'm pretty certain it's not, right? So uh, there's a lot about these, these systems and society uh, um, that we, we should consider thoughtfully because it seems to me that 60 years from now, 100 years from now, we're going to look at social media the same way that we can look at electricity. You know, we're going to look at this as a watershed moment in the relationship between humanity and technology. I truly believe it. Oh, and we, yeah. haven't, we haven't yet seen what the, the effect of this is going to be, not just in terms of technology and te technological products, and advertising and sort of corporate communication. The leader of the free world occasionally calls the leader of another country little rocket man or so you know, like we we have literally no idea what this could provoke. Well, you know, you know, it's it, and that's interesting, right? Because what is past is prologue. So if you look at the election of John Kennedy in nineteen sixty, it's widely regarded that Kennedy got elected because of the televised debate he had with Richard Nixon. Mm-hmm. Because Kennedy made good TV and Richard Nixon did not. Fun, fun fact. My grandfather was JFK's telecommunications officer, and they were stationed in the White House during the Kennedy and Johnson administration. Oh, right on, man. So, you know, your grandfather knew all about it. So Kennedy was our first new media president in some ways, right? And technology and the presidency have always gone hand in hand. You think about FDR and his fireside chats. You know, that was cutting edge at the time tuning into the radio, gathering on the radio, listening to the patient, wise voice of the president, right? And then television takes over, and you're looking for photogenic people, right? You know, think about how television changed music. You didn't used to have to be incredibly attractive to be a musician. You just had to be good. You know, you just had to have talent. You had to have good songs. Now, it's a prerequisite. It's more important than the quality of your music. 
So a lot of the great musicians who made the great classic songs don't necessarily look like, you know, models. Uh, and I'm not sure those people would get the platform that people get now because that's a prerequisite because you have to look good. You have to look good on the little screens, right? And, you know, Obama used new media in a very savvy way. Uh, I think that helped create a narrative that McCain felt like the past and Obama felt like the future because he kind of harnessed the power of social media back in the day. I remember there was a big deal that Obama put ads inside of Burnham. Yeah, McCain famously kind of refused to engage in that sort of, which a lot of people were like, yeah, you know. What's the original thing, right? Like, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to factor in something that experientially you're very far from. And, 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 you know, by the same token, you know, Trump is very much a social media president. You know, I think, uh, you know, I think, Obama may have opened the door to it, but I would consider Donald Trump to be America's first social media president, fully empowered by social media as a primary element of their communication. It was always additional with Barack Obama, but Trump, that's his, that's his bully pulpit. He has moved the bully pulpit from the podium to Twitter, right? And so it, it's, it, and things are changing, and, and it's difficult to recognize an evolutionary moment when you're in the center of it, you only really see them in hindsight because we're all like the, the, the frogs in the water on the stove. You know, the heat gets turned up and we don't really notice, and before we know it, we're boiling and dead. And that's kind of what it's like to live through watershed moments in history. You don't really know history is, you know, changing in a radical way until you get beyond it and you can look back on it and you're like, ooh, you know, things sort of changed. So, you know, like bringing it back to comics, kind of exploring those things, uh, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all interesting to me, uh, um, you know, that stuff. And it's something I, I give a lot of consideration to, uh, how, you know, how these things affect us and, and why we communicate. And it's a large part of why I'm patient with people online, because there's a certain pressure that comes from simply being on social media. So if somebody's rude to me, on social media, I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe the pressure got to him today. Let me not add to it. I'm trying to embrace your inner you and be a little bit better. Uh, so so you, you do inspire. You should know that. Uh, well, it's, you know, it's, it's not really a matter of, like, better or worse. It's, you know. Oh, it's, for me, it's absolutely doing better. For me, I, I – I, these are my personal feelings of myself. Like I let people get to me too easily, and I've been trying to to be a bit more um, you about it and be like, all right, why is this person pissed? Like, let me understand what what what. Let me understand what they understand, and and you know we can go from there. Well, it in a in a hyper connected world where privacy has a different meaning than it used to have, where a, a large percentage of people feel compelled to market everything about their lives, right? We, we experience things so that we can share them with other people, not so we can delve into the experience itself. In a world where this is becoming the standard, gaining sovereignty over your own thoughts and emotions, I think, is incredibly important because that's the only real dominion we we always have, right? You may not be able to control a lot of things in life, but what you can control 
is how you let your thoughts affect you and how you deal with your own emotions. Those things always remain in your, even if you're in prison, at the bottom of a, of a cell somewhere, you know, you're in a dungeon, you can exert control over that. So taking an active relationship with those things, I believe is very important. And, and not living passively so that your reactive mind is in charge all of the time. And exploring the self and exploring why you feel the things you feel before you act upon those emotions can, can help you out a great deal. You know, I get angry like everyone else does. And I, want, and I react to things like everyone else does. But I take a moment to say, why are you feeling like this, Brian? Why are you angry? And usually what I'll find is, well, I'm angry because I'm afraid of something. What are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid of this. But that can't really hurt you, can it? No, it can't. So why are you afraid of it? I don't know. Don't be afraid. I won't. And then I'm not angry anymore, right? And at, at first it took a process. It took time to go through that. Now I still travel through those phases, but it happens fairly quickly. Right? Um, but, yeah, that's, you know, those are the things that, that really matter to me. And as my storytelling goes forward, you know, I'm doing a lot of research. I'm doing a lot of personal work on, on myself, really. You know, I'm trying to absorb knowledge from a lot of different sources. As I start to come to some useful conclusions, I think you're going to see those things manifested in my work a bit more, ideas about those things. You know, I, I grew up reading books and, and learning from stories because I felt like a writer was giving me a little bit of gnosis, a little bit of knowledge uh, about a subject, and I was able to apply that knowledge to, to my life. I mean, it's one of the things that I talk about in the Titans writer, writer's room a lot is can we put an idea in here? Can we put a conclusion in here? or a perspective in here that the viewer can, can take away and apply to their lives. Because I still remember, for instance, there was a moment in a Batman comic. I don't remember. It was one of the Nightfall comics. I think Chuck Dixon may have written it. And uh, Batman is tired. He's exhausted. It's like in, in the last third of that, of that uh, kind of you know, mega story. And Batman's on a rooftop, and he has to keep fighting on. He has to pursue someone or whatever it is. And he always knew Batman was tired in the 90s because he had stubble. That was the, that was the visual representation that Batman is a little exhausted. He has stubble. He's, gr he's grizzled. He's grizzled, right? He's a little stubble. And I think it's just a, a couple caption boxes in a panel where Batman says he moves into the pain and through it. And I remember thinking about that when I was a kid. And maybe it was like football practice or it might be some other thing or I was, you know, jogging or whatever it was, I would still go back to that panel and attempt to move into the pain and through it. I don't know what Chuck Dixon, you know, was really saying to me. I'm not sure where he got that or even if he practiced it. But I tried to practice it, and it worked to a point. It made difficult things easier. You know, it taught me to, instead of running away from my pain, move into the center of my pain and push through that pain uh, to get to the other side. So those are the things uh, that, that stayed with me when I was a kid. And uh, as my work continues and I get a little better at the craft because I'm still learning my way around comics, as I get better at that, if I continue to write comics, I think you're going to see some ideas um, get a little more present in the work. Well, you know, you, you, you lowball yourself <clears throat> on, the, on the comic writing side of things. Um, I think you have a smash hit on your hands right now. Any, any review I've seen of it, um, and, and 
my personal review of it, uh, you know, of course, I'm talking about Killmonger. Um, you're dropped mm. number one of your five-part series here uh, for Marvel, looking, of course, at Njidaka, a.k.a. Eric Killmonger, um, and, and sort of a – I really enjoyed your letter. I really did. Um, mm. Your letters, your, I think your letter spoke to me for a couple of reasons because I, I maybe like, I'm not going to go as far as to say like, yeah, I'm your super good friend, but I feel like I, I know you a bit more through social media. Sure. Uh, understand we've had conversations and, and stuff. So you, you, the words maybe meant a little bit more to me than, than the average person. I, I, you know, I'm sure other people who've interacted with you would feel the same way. Because uh, cause you can imagine what you're saying and why you're saying it. <clears throat> and I love the fact that you full-on addressed the fact that you were not going to run in on the coattails of, of the movie. This was going to be um, a telling of, of your imagination and of yourself. Um, well, you know, when, when, when Will Moss first emailed me and he asked me if I'd be interested in writing a, a Killmonger miniseries, I initially wasn't. Because I'm like, well, I get the movie's really popular, and I get that you want to put out more Black Panther content because there's probably an appetite for it. But I just had no interest in taking the Wikipedia page and retelling it in five issues, right? Like, that just didn't seem useful to me or useful to readers. So I told Will that. I'm like, well, if I do this, I'm going to do this as a tragic story about a guy that could have walked a more righteous path but just could not evolve himself in time. He couldn't escape the, uh, the hurt and the fear, and he dove headfirst into his anger, and that resulted uh, in the uh, Eric Killmonger we know. And I wanted to create some new characters. Uh, I deliberately didn't want to keep the story within, like, Wakanda. You know, I, I feel like Eric is a guy who... You know, if you're going to tell a story about the prodigal son, you, you have to tell the story outside of the kingdom. And you have to tell the story of the outsider from the outsider's point of view. And I also wanted to get into Eric's spirituality, you know, his relationship to his gods, and, and how difficult it is to carry the candle flame of that faith in a, in a consensus reality that doesn't recognize the, the strength of it, you know. And so those were the things I wanted to do. And I, and I sent an email back to Will, and I'm like, you guys probably don't want to do any of this, but this is sort of what I'm thinking. And I think probably gave him like a page synopsis of the story. Uh, and then he read it and got back to me really quickly. He's like, oh, this sounds great. Um, you know, we were looking for someone to come in and really invest themselves into this and not just do like a, a cash grabby thing. Uh, and uh, that's why, you know, kind of Killmonger is the way it is. You know, when it comes to the letter in the back of the first issue, honestly, my nature is to not talk to people. I'm a fairly solitary individual. I don't really socialize all that much. You know, I, I, I go to the things I have to go to when I have to go to them. But I'm not really a person that likes uh, to draw attention from the work and onto themselves. But I have noticed that nearly every comics professional that I know is on social media in some form. So it would have felt odd and maybe, you know, counterproductive to my career to not be there. Uh, but the only way I know how to do it and keep my sanity is, is by having a social media feed that's as honest and true to who I am as possible. Because what, I, what I'm very cognizant of is I would never want someone to have an experience on social media 
and then meet me and have a completely different and disappointing experience, right? Yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to do that to a reader, you know. I, I, I can imagine myself on the other side of a table and, and what that would, would feel like. And, and I would probably be less interested in that person's work, you know, after an experience like that. So I, I try to be as honest and transparent as I can online, one, so I can maintain a continuity of my social media self and my real-world self so I don't go schizophrenic, but two, so I can hopefully be a, an example of how you don't have to be pure bravado all the time, and you don't have to project perfection about yourself all the time. But you also don't have to, like, wallow in self-pity, like, like a lot of times, you know, you see uh, uh, people do. And, you know, maybe that can elevate the conversation a little bit or, or, or do a thing, you know. Uh, but, yeah, you know, the letter, I just wanted to be honest to readers and say, hey, I guess with readers, and, you know, this is what I wanted to do. This is why I'm doing the thing I do. And, look, I don't know if everyone's going to like the way the story turns out. I make a lot of choices in this miniseries. But I want people to know that those choices are coming from a sincere place. So even if you don't like it, you know that I'm not just doing it arbitrarily. I'm doing it with some real intention. I think even if you – and I'm saying this as somebody who, who read the work and, um, you know, who watched the movie. And I think that even if you're a fan of what Eric Killmonger is in the movie, this isn't a drastic departure. Um, it's, it's you know, it, it pretty much follows somewhat, I think, almost perfectly in line um, with, with with what happened in there. It's just not existing necessarily in that universe. It, it it's it's its own story. It's your own Killmonger. Um, I really enjoyed uh, the inclusion of of Kingpin. I'm, I, you know, spoiler alert. I'm, I'm sure most people know who are. Oh, he's, he's, on, he's on the cover to the second issue. That's not a spoiler. Okay. All right. Well, I didn't really care. That's why I said it after, not before. Um, but uh, I really loved the inclusion of Kingpin um, and, and, and sort of the, the little twists and turns uh, that that took. Um, I also loved the guidance counselor's reaction to, to being called a colonizer. That I'll leave for readers to find for themselves. It's uh, it's, yeah, it's people, ab- people have been talking about that one. I get a lot of twi- tweets about that. Oh, it's brilliant, man. It's absolutely brilliant. Well, you know, with, with Eric... I wanted to present him as kind of a shark, meaning he's a character that can only move forward. Uh, And there's something compelling about that. I mean, we live in a society where we're constantly trying to make everyone else comfortable all the time. You know, we're sort of taught that, right? What can we do? How can we be? What don't we say so that the maximum people get the maximum amount of comfort um, from their interactions with me? You know, that's kind of what lives inside of what everyone's head. But it doesn't live inside of Eric's. You know, Eric is not interested in anyone's comfort. He's interested in getting what he wants. And there's a purity in that. Even if it's driven by adolescent forces, there is something magnetic about someone who is unapologetic about their desire. And that's one of the things I wanted to explore in the book is the magnetism of that. You know, and, and sort of seduce the reader into that mindset before I start picking apart the problems with it as the story goes on. Uh, you know, it, it's, I guess Eric is a, he's Luciferian in a way, right? You know, he is, 
the, the leader of the War of Rebellious Angels, who looks at the god on the throne and says, you don't deserve to be there, uh, and what you do is not just, and I have to be the one to usurp it. And, and there's always something compelling sort of about that because it's incredibly human. And in many ways, Eric is much easier to relate to than T'Challa uh, because we, we all have experienced something that Eric has been through. We haven't all experienced what T'Challa has been yeah, through. Yeah, I, I can't say I've been a royal, but... Right? You can't I've, say I've, you've been a royal, right? There's no throne waiting I've been waiting an intelligent outsider, though. But you've I've been, been an in... intelligent outsider. Exactly. <laughs> You know, you know, you think back to John Milton in Paradise Lost. You know, Milton, oh, God. Milton's goal, he, you know, Milton read the Bible and said, this is good, but it needs a literary update. And, and, and me and my pious thoughts, I'm going to use my God-given talent to retell this story so that more people turn their eyes to God, right? That was the intention. And I think what, what happened as Milton began to write the story, inadvertently, the Satan of Paradise Lost becomes the protagonist because he's the character you can understand the most. Because God has no, no voice when it comes to intention, right, when it comes to pathos. God doesn't really have pathos. You know, God just is. God just does. God inherently justifies God. So it's hard to relate to that. But when you read Paradise Lost, you relate much more to the person that says, well, I'd rather, you know, live in hell on, on my feet than live in heaven on my knees. You know, there's, there's something really compelling about that. Um, uh, and that, that energy, that spirit, that, 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 that vision of the adversary, as you will, like that's something I, I think that lives inside of Eric. and lives inside of all of us, really. Um, and I'm not even opposed to that energy. I just think it needs to be balanced. And the problem that Eric faces is he's all that with nothing else. He's all shadow with no light, basically. And without yeah. giving away spoilers, no, you're going to see Eric. going to happen. <laughs> won't do that. But, he, you know, you're going to see Eric get an opportunity for light in the story. And events, both by his choice and outside of his choices, might cost him that opportunity. Uh, and uh, then his embrace of his shadow nature, I think, will make more sense you know, afterwards. And, and, and these kinds of things, to me, have been what comics do best. Um, not to say that, that my work is great or anything. I don't think it is. But it, it clearly oh. lives, it lives in the tradition of those stories that explore duality, that explore psychosis, that explore personal transformation, right? I mean, those are the aspects of comic book characters that have always fascinated me. That's why I love Batman so much. You know, it, it's, it, I'm always drawn to characters that have this dualism that they have to either reconcile with or get destroyed by. It's why I love uh, Al Ewing's work right now so much. Because so since dualism, Descartes. Yeah, and, yeah, he's he's really he's really engaging that stuff with that Hulk story, and it, it's brilliant. You know, it, I think it's uh it's one of the best things I've read in any format in quite some time. So, yeah, you know, those are those are the things that galvanize me. Those are the things that make me wake up and want to write something. Um, and I'm really grateful and appreciative of everyone who's uh, picked it up and enjoyed it and told me about that. I mean, that's that's awesome. Well, my buddy uh, Ken, who uh, mm. 
Bader Quake on Twitter. I, I told him I would ask the question. Yes. He wants to know if Spider-Man will make an appearance <laughs> in a cameo. And I'm like, well, I mean, if he is, I don't know that Brian would be like, yeah, spoiler, you know? Well, look, just so we don't gain momentum around this, I am sorry to say that during the events of Killmonger, Spider-Man has other things he has to do. Yeah, it, 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 Eric has there's Eric's got enough going on. He he, the story it, it would need to be contained anyway. This is I you know there's there's enough periphery right there now that that I I think it actually and I know that uh, Ken what he wanted to know that Killmonger was uh, it was great and uh, I took you know uh, Ken and I got off to a rocky start. It was one of those instances on Twitter where uh, I you know we both let some the moment get the better of us, but uh, we both kind of grooved and settled in. And then, uh, yeah, you know, it's one of those things where after cooler heads prevail, you discover, hey, guess what? This, this guy's not so bad. Oh, all right. I mean, that's <laughs> always good to hear. I'm glad you guys worked that out. And, and well, yeah, and, and with, with Eric, you don't want too many Marvel characters being aware of him, you know, before he goes to Wakanda because it sort of breaks the story, right? But I will say that one more major Marvel character will make an appearance uh, in this miniseries, and I will explore aspects of that character that I feel have not been explored uh, recently. I can't wait for that. I'm not even going to pry. I don't want to know more. I just I want to be amazed. Um, so I want to, before we get into our Michael Mann discussion, I want to briefly touch on, because I feel like I would be remiss if we didn't talk about Titan. Now, I'm sure. going to caveat this by saying I am going to sign up for the free trial just so I can watch this show. I have seen too many people talk about how good it is. But I can do some sort of a, a superficial conversation here. Uh, and, 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 I, and I'm fine. You don't necessarily have to worry with me about spoilers. Um, I, I, I wouldn't honestly know what a spoiler is for some of these characters anyway. I have always kind of been a Marvel guy, not, not because I hate DC, but because I always was more able to, to imagine things that took place in New York and Los Angeles. Sure, I don't, sure. That, that's just sort of where my mind has always been as a child. And, and I was a huge X-Men fan. Was well, uh, the way I describe it is, is DC is a window into an extraordinary world, and Marvel is a mirror uh, of our world. And that, to me, describes the difference, the, the base difference in experience between uh, both companies broadly. I mean, each of them have works that sort of cross over, but I think in general, uh, you know, uh, that's sort of how I describe it, for sure. Well, what I want to know is, hmm. what was it like to get the call that, hey, this is, we're doing this, it's going to be a huge deal for us, and we want you to be a part of it? Uh, well, it, it was odd. You know, I mean, I, I'd come off one season of Ash vs. Evil Dead, and I kind of slipped and fell into that season of TV. And didn't really give a lot of thought to continuing to work in television. Uh, I, I mean, I have no real plan, you know, when it comes to my career. I just sort of do things as opportunities interest me and, and get in front of me. And I and I remember getting, you know, getting a call like, hey, there's a, a show called Titans 
Um, we're going to send you the script, you know, take a look at it. You know, they might want to meet with you. And I, I assumed it was going to be some kind of, you know, Greco-Roman, you know, pantheons. <laughs> I wasn't even thinking comics. Like, because I didn't know they were making like a, a live action show based on the, uh, based on the Titans. So when I got the script and I read it and I saw Dick Grayson, I was like, oh, oh, okay. This is the thing that's happening. Um, and then from there, you know, it, I find that it's easier to keep your balance if you don't put too much on individual opportunities as they start to evolve. And you just sort of enjoy things moment by moment. So when it came to the Titans process, I was just happy to sit down with Jeff Johns and have a conversation. You know, I mean, like, I hadn't really met him yet, read some of his work, respected a lot of his work. Uh, and seeing what he's been able to do. Um, and, you know, I just decided, you know, uh, that I was going to go there and have a conversation with him and talk some comics and talk some writing and see where we are. Uh, and then the conversation went well, and I met the showrunner, Greg Walker, uh, who I liked very much. Greg is a brilliant, brilliant storyteller and just a great guy and enjoyed that conversation. You know, and, and, and didn't really think much was going to come of it, right? I'm like, I just, I've done one season of television. Like, you know, this seems like advanced stuff, and they're not going to want someone like me on it. But, you know, it, it's always fine to meet people. And when I got the call that uh, they wanted me to be in the room, I was just really excited to to do it. Uh, and that first season, we had such a great room with so many experienced writers. But I just learned a lot through the process. Nikiva Goldsman, you know, was in the room with us. Um, and, you know, Jeff was in the room breaking story with us, and Greg was, you know, leading the room there as showrunner, and we had, like, you know, Gabrielle Stanton is a brilliant writer, and Richard Haddam, and, you know, people that just really knew the craft. So uh, it didn't really click what it was, honestly, until I got to Toronto. You know, I remember when it happened, and I was, there's an episode, episode five, the first episode with my credit on it, happens at this motel on location in Toronto. And it was brutally cold that day. Uh, and there was a little fight that happened at night. Uh, Robin has to jump in uh, to a situation and pacify it to protect the people he cares for. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm sitting there, and I'm in my parka. I'm drinking my terrible set coffee because coffee on set is always terrible, but also incredibly necessary. So I'm drinking my necessary and terrible coffee. And Brenton, Brenton Twaits, uh, a, a great actor, a great guy, comes out of his trailer with the Robin outfit on, and it really hit me what was going on. <laughs> because I was watching him in a Robin costume, and I was like, whoa, this is actually happening. And, when you're, you know, and, and if you see the show, you know, when Brendan's in costume, he looks like Dick Grayson. So when he's standing in front of you wearing a Robin costume, you feel like you're talking to Robin. And it's kind of a surreal experience for a kid that grew up reading comic books. So that, I imagine. that's when it really struck me what was going on. But I'll tell you, man, like in Hollywood, you always get opportunity before you're ready for it. You're never prepared to do anything. Right? I, you know, I've never had a moment in my Hollywood career where I felt absolutely prepared to do the things that I was about to do. It's always been uh, a little Captain Kirk, right? <laughs> a little like, okay, the Klingons are what? 
and we're out of what? How much time do we have left? Okay, I'm going to figure this out. And that's, that's what it was working on the show, you know, it was just like get rising to the occasion over and over and over again. And when you're in that situation, you're not really thinking about it in, in, you know, in those terms. You're only trying to solve problems. Um, I think in retrospect, that's when it really hit me. You know, when you see the marketing, like you're walking down the street and you see the billboard for the show that you worked on, and that's, that, that's a moment. You're like, whoa. Or an episode comes out and suddenly, like, you know, your, your Twitter feed's blowing up and your Facebook page is blowing up and people are, are either mad at you or happy with you or they're talking about the moments and the thing. Like, that's really when it, when it kind of lands in your spirit. Like, okay, this is the thing that I did. This is the thing that I'm part of. Um, you know, it's same thing with a Killmonger. Like, you know, it's, you know, you write it, you, you, you work on it, you want it to be the best you can, and, you know, and Juan Ferreira is, is amazing. So he's doing, like, great art. He's doing, like, all the art duties on that. You know, he's doing, like, the pencils and the inks and the colors. He's even doing some of the onomatopoeia. Um, so, uh, you know, you, you, you know, you're just kind of making it, you're just making it. Uh, but then it comes out and then you're like, you know, walking into a comic book store and then you see it or someone links you to a YouTuber that really liked it and you're watching it or someone who read it says, Hey, this moment here meant a lot to me because of this personal thing. And I, I keep my DMs open on Twitter. So people tweet me all the time, personal reactions to things that I've written. Uh, and that's when it really lands, you know, like what you're doing and what you're a part of and, and what kind of experience you're giving to people. Um, but, yeah, when I'm in the middle of the fight, I'm not really thinking about anything except winning the fight. So you get on set, Robin walks by you, you're, you're blown away. Obviously, it's going to take you a minute to grow into your new role, right? Wor- or... Worse than that, Robin has a question for me. So I don't even get the moment to just, like, kind of settle in and absorb it. It's like Robin comes out of his trailer and wants to talk to me. <laughs> so here's talking to Robin about a moment in the script or something. Um, yeah, and and, you know, you just have to kind of – Settle in and do it. You know, uh, you know, think about what Jim Cameron would do. Think about what Steven Spielberg would do, right? Sort of think about Michael Mann, right? You know, think about, like, the people you've admired and the work you've admired, and you just try to emulate them the best you can. So, it's time to talk about heat. Mm, yes. I need to know. What 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 am I missing? Because I'm I'm not gonna lie, I tried. I tried. Well, okay, I there's a couple, a couple things we're operating here. So you got to. I grew up in Missouri, right? So I grew up pretty far from Los Angeles. So part of Michael Mann's work when I was young was just getting a window into a city I'd never been to before. And I saw Heat when I was going to NYU. I was at NYU at the time. I remember that was '95. It was a good movie year because Seven came out the same year as Heat. So both of those films affected me deeply. And, and he presented this picturesque, lyrical view of Los Angeles. Uh, and so part of the experience was just sort of seeing the majestic city, a city I'd never been to. And the other element was, like I said on Twitter, I've always felt that I was a person a bit out of step with society. You know, I, I've always felt like the things I care about and the ethics I keep don't really gel 
with the society that we have. I, I do not like to compromise who I am for anyone over anything. And sometimes that gets you in trouble. You know, the person that won't compromise often becomes a target because you can be seen as a threat to, you know, a fragile system sort of based on people stepping away from who they really are. And I'm not particularly good at stepping away from who I really am. And there have been situations where I did find myself a target. Uh, And Michael Mann creates characters that are living through just that. And so Neil McCauley really spoke to me as a character especially when you're a young man and you're figuring out manhood, you know, and you don't really know what that means. And my father died when I was a kid. So I, you know, I didn't grow up with a a man to constantly compare myself to. Uh, I didn't grow up with this masculine kind of role model that I would eventually get stronger than, eventually get faster than, you know, eventually I would throw the football further. I didn't have those moments. So my adolescence was difficult and my early 20s was difficult because, you know, people start relating to you as a man, but you don't really feel like a man. You still kind of feel like a boy. So I started gravitating towards, I guess, like kind of masculine archetypes in cinema um, to try to find some kind of understanding on that, find some gnosis about all that. Uh, and, you know, Neil McCauley at the time has really affected me because he was sort of like this modern-day samurai trying to hold his group of outlaw samurai together in a world that, wants to tear them apart and destroy them. Um, and and, and those, that, the, that philosophical stuff just, you know, it just resonated with me deeply. You know, like when he talks about 30 seconds or less or when you see the heat around the corner, right? And, and you really see about what that means. Having the ability to walk away from all of your material things because you see the threat to your existence coming. And that's what can keep you alive, Right? Like, you know, that's something I just I thought about it so much afterwards. It kind of reminded me of the Hagakuri, you know, which I've also read uh, a few times, you know, and how those ethics play. So, you know, I think it, it's just at the moment I saw it, it was really just that moment in time, what I was going through. And that's how film works, man. Like, you know, films catch you when you're if – they, if they catch you when you are in the frequency of a film – then that film's going to matter to you, and that film's kind of always going to matter to you. Uh, so the length of heat never bothered me. I think I saw it three times in the theater because I just wanted to length go back. Length of movies doesn't generally bother me. Um, it's, it, it, it largely has to do with how captivating is, is it. And, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that uh, obviously that coffee shop scene is, is outstanding. Like, don't get me wrong. There's, there's a lot of quality things going on there from the way the scene is cut to, to the actual dialogue itself. And really kind of that meeting of the minds on neutral ground, like, Hey, you know, in theory I could bust you now, but no, no, like I have way too much respect for you to do that. And, you know, you could take me out right now, but you have way too much respect for me to do that, so game on. Well, um, and also, I was in film school, man, so, you know, man's photography was a fascination for me. You know, his use of telephoto lenses and the, the way he would compose a frame, the way he would move the camera, like, all of that stuff, you know, uh, left an impression on me. I think what I appreciate the most about Michael Mann's work is how he's able to take something familiar like an American city and turn it into a frontier. And that's a difficult thing to do. 
the most difficult thing to do aesthetically is take something that we see every day and make it feel new and fresh and foreign. And he's so good at doing that. Look at Collateral, right? Like, Collateral is L.A., but it also feels like Planet Man in a way. And it's, it's the way he chooses locations and the way he uses those locations uh, to create a certain kind of feeling, like a particular noble melancholy that is woven through all of his works uh, that, that speaks to me, really, you know, in a way. I guess I had this own resonance with that, you know, with that kind of, kind of feeling. I mean, I can get why, you know, it, it, the thing about man is man's movies aren't about a lot of things. They're deeply about a few things. And if those things don't catch you, I can imagine them being kind of arduous. But for me, he's usually telling a story about ideas that matter very much to me personally. It mattered very much to Adam, who, though he couldn't be on this, uh, wanted to, to let it be known that he uh, knows this movie like the back and front of his hand. Um, Say, so give me a second to think of some questions, because I know that film and its cast back to front. So here's the first question for you. Hmm. Pacino and De Niro only share a limited amount of screen time in that film and, it, film, and it's brilliant. Why do you think, though, they've never been able to capture that same magic since? And he does caveat. Uh, uh, he says, granted, they've only done one other film, and since we are yet to see The Irishman, um, but, yeah. Well, you got to remember with Heat, Heat is a remake of another thing Michael Mann wrote and directed called L.A. Takedown. So it was a made-for-TV movie, I believe. He did for NBC, a kind of post-Miami Vice and crime story and pre-Manhunter, I think. So he had already kind of run through the paces of this story before. And that allowed him to perfect it when he, uh, he kind of revisited the same narrative uh, um, and Heat, it's based on, like, a real thief, I believe, that he'd spoken to. I used to know the name of that fella. I uh, forgot that fella's name, the real thief. So I think that helps. I think also man understands people's archetypes, uh, um, meaning he understands the symbolic value of an actor, which is a very important skill for a director to have because you have the performance of the actor in the work, which is unique to the work, but what's inescapable is the symbolic value of that actor. And he, he expertly knew how to combine Pacino's kind of over-the-top boil with De Niro's cold, brooding calculation. And it's that balance of forces at play that, that makes that work, the yin and yang complement um, of both of those characters. I also think it had a lot of impact uh, because they did not spend a lot of time on screen together. And it was the denial of those moments that made the coffee shop scene feel so special, but also also the, the moments around the coffee shop scene because there was a great deal of anticipation, you know, for the moment they were there. It was really interesting about it is there's no two shot in the, in the coffee shop scene. You get close-ups and you get over the shoulders, but you never get the two-shot. He shot the two-shot because you can look at behind-the-scenes photographs and see that there is that angle. That exists somewhere on footage, but he never cut it in. 
So he sort of denied the two-shot to the audience, I think, to keep the sovereignty of each of those actors' kind of vibes from, from blending too much. The only two shots you get of Pacino and De Niro is at the very end when they're holding hands and De Niro's been shot and he's laying on that piece of machinery on the airfield. Uh, and that's when you see them together. But it's a long shot, right? right? So, you know, good filmmaking, good storytelling, good art, really, is as much about what you don't do as it is about what you do. And for people listening to this that are creating things, you know, give a lot of thought to restricting things from your audience or your reader and the effect of that. What is the effect of that, right? How could that enhance the, uh, the power of your work? Um, and I think that's why that movie works so, so well. And, you know, the script is very good, so they've got better material. It's important can... to understand, like, my cinematic – I consider such films like Ready to Rumble with uh, David Arquette to, you know – that's that's peak filmmaking to me. Hey man, there's totally. nothing wrong with some ready to rumble, man. Like, hey, I wrote a Dolph Lundgren movie. That was my first, my first actual credit was a Dolph Lundgren film I wrote called The Russian Specialist when I was like 22, right? Nice. So, uh, you know, I think I've seen I, that. I, I I have love for all types of cinema, um, and uh, you know, like it, whether we talk about like quote unquote filmmakers like Michael Mann. I also love a lot of things that are quote unquote movies, um, and, and watch them a lot. But but yeah, I think that's that's probably why that and he feels so special. And also, it's the first time, and the first time always feels better than the subsequent times. That's fair. What what in relation to that? And I'll come back to this for in a second. But but what over the last two years? What are sort of your top five films over the last two years? They don't have oh, to be in any order. Man. You know, I haven't even thought about things in those terms. Well, uh, for any reason, it doesn't have to be. Oh, this is the top five film because it was this. It can be something, something as as I don't want to say pedestrian because that that's, it sounds rude. But like something you mean. as remedial well, as hey, this film just spoke to me. I enjoyed it. Like that's that's why it's here. It's like I, I get. Think, so so Mandy is probably my favorite film of the year. Um, and that's a Panos Cosmetos film written by Aaron Stewart on and Panos starring Nicolas Cage and Andrea Risenborough and Linus Roach. And that movie, I think it's available on streaming. It might be exclusive to Shudder um, now. It might be available now. I know it's on Blu-ray. But my, I, my Shutter subscription just lapsed. <laughs> I love Mandy, and I, I'm a huge fan of of, of Cosmetos's uh, previous film. I think his debut feature, uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, and Mandy captures all of the qualities of that film that I love, and adds some things to it. It's it's really the the kind of thing that I I love most of all. Like it's sort of an emotional, unique, aesthetic genre experience. So I really enjoyed Mandy. Um, you know, Blade Runner 2049, which is, I guess, last year, uh, stuck with me in a way I didn't think it was going to because I didn't think Blade Runner needed a sequel. But um, when I saw it, I thought it was a, a really impressive uh, work. Um, 
You know, I, recently I saw Creed two, and that was the first time I almost cried. I'm so the excited! I'm so excited to go and see that. You film. should see it, man. I mean, I teared I can't up. Wait. And I, I never tear up in movies, but that movie caught me. Dude, December is kicking my ass, man. We got into the Spider Verse. We've got Bumblebee, which is getting rave reviews. We've yeah. got. We've got uh, uh, Aquaman, of course. You've got Creed two, uh, a Mary Poppins returns, Emily Blunt and Lin Manuel Miranda, as you would expect, appear to have crushed it. And at this point, Disney is just printing billions. Like it's not even fair. Oh, yeah, I'm convinced sure. that Amazon and Disney are going to own everything. <laughs> um, um, yeah, like you know, I tell you what, man. One of the one of the films that I've been recommending, um, and I. I think it was it was released within the past two years. is a is a small intimate horror film called A Dark Song, and I believe it is written and directed by uh, Liam Gavin. And um, it's it's a very simple horror film. You know, it's about a woman that is uh, getting taught how to perform an occult ritual so she can reconnect with uh, her dead son. I believe it's a son. Okay. Um, but it is, it's the only horror film that I've ever seen that intelligently explores esoteric thought um, and does it with uh, a, uh, an honesty and an openness. Um, I don't know of, how... Instead of sort of mocking it as part of the occult. Well, well yeah, and, and, and listen, like, you know, I have no problem with those pictures either, and I am far... Uh, from an expert on any of that stuff, like I know very little about those systems, but it was uh, it was enthralling to watch a film, you know, treat that that in a I don't want to say serious, but in a thoughtful way, you know, and, it, and it's essentially a two character horror film set in one location, but it's brilliantly photographed. It's it's terrifying in the ways that you want something to be in a way that sticks with you, right? It's not a jump scare piece. It's terrifying because of the spiritual and psychological implications of what you're watching on screen, and it has great performance. The two leads are fantastic. Um, and I don't know if a lot of people have seen the film, because, you know, the smaller horror movies, they sometimes they fall between the, the cracks, and I, I think this film um, fell between, between the cracks a little bit, but uh, it looks like people have started to find it more and more and more. Um, so if anyone's listening to this and they're interested in it, it's called A Dark Song. I believe it is on Netflix. If not, I know it is available to rent on Amazon for like a few bucks. I cannot recommend this movie enough. You know, I think Liam, um, just based on this one film, is one of uh, uh, the most exciting filmmakers we have um, uh, right now. And, and he's certainly someone whose work I'm, I'm, uh, I'm paying great attention to. But but yeah, I think that, I mean, that's you know, three. That's three. Well, I have two more. Um, yep. Gosh, uh, I'm trying to think of the actual experience. You know, I enjoyed Halloween. Um, I've always been a big Michael Myers fan. I even made like a little Michael Myers like kind of director's uh, study piece. It's online somewhere, uh, and uh, I enjoyed the the latest one. Uh, with a, with a, I want to say David Gordon Green directed it, um, but I thought I thought it was a uh, you know a, a, a really cool experience. So I thought that I'm still but, waiting on Scream Five. <laughs> that, might, that might happen. We might get it right. It um, should. 
and then beyond Halloween, I'm trying to think of something that really, really got me. Um, hmm. I mean, the Marvel movies kind of all blend together for me. Sure. It's hard for me to separate, like, the Black Panther experience from the Avengers experience. They're all good, but we all know they're good. So I feel like it's always a waste of time. I was kind of surprised they they moved Marvel, or excuse me, Avengers up with, I mean, because, well, I mean, at the end of the day, it didn't seem to affect either film in in terms of revenue, but uh, I was kind of surprised at that, and and it looks like they're doing something similar with Captain Marvel, so, uh, yeah, but, but, yeah, no, I totally, I'm not shocked when somebody doesn't list a, a, a Marvel film, especially when you've got works out there you know, like A Quiet Place and, and so on and so forth. Well, I think that the are Marvel films are, like, excellent, you know, like, like you know, uh, experiences, but they're so ubiquitous, and it's almost a given. It's like talking about basketball and talking about, like, Michael Jordan or something. It's like that's not right. the most interesting conversation to have. Like, I could talk about LeBron, but who isn't talking about LeBron? Right. So, so I leave those. Like, uh, let's talk uh, about, about Luka Doncic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Like that is an interesting conversation. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, I no, I'm kind of trying to find a fifth film. And honestly, brother, I don't know. Like, I, I'll tell you Fair what. Fair enough. I, I have four. That's <laughs> you know what, man. I'm sticking on four. That's totally fine. You know, I, I mean, sometimes. Oh, five... oh, oh! Mission Impossible. Whatever okay. it was. Okay. I, I, uh, I really enjoyed the Rogue, Rogue Nation or something. Was that Fallout? It? Fallout, I think. Okay. Yeah. The latest wow. Mission Impossible. The latest Mission Impossible. I really enjoyed that movie. Um, you know, Tom Cruise still makes me feel like I felt when I was like 14, and I go watch a movie. Uh, mm. And and probably mainly because it's him, because I you know I was watching him in movies when I was 14, like everybody else in the world, but. You know, they just kind of feel like old school action movies with real physicality, real risk, um, you know, like kind of whip snap plots. And I, I just dig them. So there you go. That's my fifth one is Mission Impossible Fallout. Um, and I have an incredibly lame crush on Rebecca Ferguson. So, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, if Rebecca Ferguson's in something, I'm trying to see it, you know. So uh, that movie just had a lot for me. <laughs> Totally, totally makes sense. Yeah, I was sort of, uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, the Marvel movies are, are all fantastic. But, yeah, at the end of the day, there there are plenty of them, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I'm, I'm rather looking forward to, and I know that Into the Spider-Verse is still a Marvel movie, but I'm looking forward to something different, you know, like oh, them capitalizing. excellent life-changing. Mm-hmm. I, I have to go see it. I um. To be honest, I don't have a great deal of time to go chase down movies. So, right, nor myself. You know, I um, I miss a lot of things because I'm either busy writing or I'm taking the time to read or I'm resting or something. So I, I don't get out to the theater as much as, as I'd like to. So a lot of things I don't catch until later on. I have a pretty good home theater set up here, so my home viewing experience is pretty good, uh, and I'm able to get – probably like 70% of what the theatrical experience would be like. I've got the sound bar and uh, a 3D TV with active 3D. I I got that before they stopped making those a thing. So if there's a quality 3D movie, 
I am all over it, man. I, yeah, I have the a home, stupid the home collection. Experience. I'm not one of those, like, you know, you got to go with theater people. I, I used to be very much a purist about the theatrical experience, but, you know, when, look, if you have a 50-plus-inch television and you got a good sound bar, you got a surround sound system, you know, and, and you've got it set up in a nice way, you can have a pretty captivating experience in your house. And uh, um, I, I I haven't seen a lot of films at home where I was like, oh, man, I wish I had seen this in a theater. Because, you know, like rel- in relative terms, the, the screen is fairly large, you know, if you're sitting, you know, four or five feet away from it. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't get out a lot to see movies. I mean, when I, when I go out, I go out to the beach to like meditate or, you know, have coffee with a friend or something. I, uh, when you, when you work in media, especially all these different forms of media I work in, it's not always recreational to watch media. It's sometimes it feels like work. My friends want me to go and watch football on days when I'm like not doing anything. And I'm like, but that's what I do. When, but I don't, I don't, I don't, can we do something else other than watch football? Because then it turns into, I feel like I have to have these pronounced conversations with people that is a deep dive into why this or that or, or whatever the case may be. And it's just like, man, this is work on my day off. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, I should probably get out of here and get to it. Uh, I've got For some, sure, uh, man writing to do um but thanks for having me man it's been a lot of fun yeah before i get you out of here i absolutely have to have you explain to people how they can find you and what you have upcoming that they can look forward to because we've already discussed some of your work but if you want to give a brief push some other works that we weren't able to highlight this the floor is yours man this is the self-promotion window Oh, oh goodness! Well, you know my my uh, my social media is uh, just at Brian Edward Hill. That's my Twitter, Brian with a Y. Um, that's where most people interact with me and where I do the bulk of you know kind of posting about things. Um, I'm working on it's up right now, but it's not done yet. I'm working on a uh, a website for like blog posts and my photography and some music stuff. Uh, but follow me on Twitter, and when I'm ready to share that, I'll, I'll put that up there. As far as, like, work that's coming out, uh, well, Killmonger's still going on. We've got four more issues of that book. Uh, American Carnage just started. There's four more issues of that. Um, Batman and the Outsiders will drop sometime next year. I don't know when, but as soon as I do, I'll let you know. I have some more stuff that I'm doing, um, maybe some Marvel stuff, but I can't announce it here. So I would just tell people to follow me online. And um, uh, as soon as I can share things, I'll share them there. I'm working on the second season of Titans at the moment. Um, I don't know when that will air, but I believe the first season is still airing right now on the DC streaming service, so you can go check that out. Um, And, uh, yeah, besides that, you know, I'm just around. Yeah, I actually saw the post uh, announcing your your little site upcoming and and where people could follow. I'm definitely – intrigued by that i can't wait to see more of your stuff man um and i can't stress enough if you haven't picked up killmonger it is a perfect time to do so you're not so far into it that it would be too expensive or cumbersome to catch up 
the work speaks volumes. Um, and American Carnage, again, rave reviews across the board. Very few people who have read it didn't like it. Um, I can only tell you what I know and what people I, I see have said about it. So, uh, Brian is, 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 he is a deep guy. He is a thoughtful guy and, and he is a wonderful dude that I, I feel very privileged to have talked to him, man. Um, I know you got to get, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so very much. And I truly am looking forward to, uh, to the, uh, to more. I won't say the finish because the finish is still a little bit away. I am looking forward to more of these little universes that you have created in these two five-part miniseries. Well, right on. Well, thank you very much for having me, and thank everyone. All right. Thank you, everybody. As always, we will be back again here on Third Nerd Podcast. So thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will catch you next time. Later, guys. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.